You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today's episode ended up being a real eye-opener for me. It's about how we deploy software to web servers, and this conversation with Will Kelleher from Class Dojo and Alec and Giuliano from No Red Inc. actually ended up changing how we do deployments at work. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com slash jobs. And now, deployments. All right, today we are talking about QA, deploys, all sorts of topics related to those subjects. We've got a couple of guests on the program. Why don't we start with Will? I want to introduce yourself, just tell us like where you're from, where you work, and good stuff like that. Yeah, my name is Will. I'm one of the engineers at Class Dojo. And I do a decent amount with like our deploy pipelines, our backends, our databases. I used to teach, got really excited about like, kind of just like the promise of ed tech, and like, which I think everybody here can like speak to. And ended up at Class Dojo and I've been there for about seven years because I've liked it. Nice. Giuliano? Sure. Hi, I'm Giuliano. I've been at Nordic for four and a half years. I work at the internal engineering team and we do all sorts of things related to CI, developer tooling, and we also touch on the place. We've been doing a long migration to Kubernetes, which is reaching its end now. And I guess that's it. And Alec. I'm Alec. I've been the manager of the QA team at Norwood Inc. for four and a half months or so. Been learning a lot about how we do QA here. I come from a general QA and developer productivity background. So everything in this topic is pretty exciting for me to discuss. Nice. All right. So let's start by just talking about, like, we got two different companies represented here, No Red Inc. and Class Dojo. So why don't we just talk about, like, how do we actually do deploys? When do they happen? What goes into a deploy? How do you decide what's whether it's good to deploy? Yeah, let's just, like, kind of kick it off there. Anybody feel free to feel free to jump in. How do we do deploys? Well, at No Red Inc., the QA team does a four times a week, a daily deploy where we go through staging run a bunch of tests, other validations, and then if that looks good, go to production later in the day. We have occasional exceptions, but that's the general process. Yeah, Class Dojo is on like the kind of other end of the spectrum where we deploy like really often. Like our main like monolith I checked looks like about 12 times a day on average. Like that can go up quite a bit or down quite a bit depending on like what teams are working on. And we deploy whenever anybody commits. Sometimes people, like if it makes sense, people do a pull request and get it reviewed. People are pairing or if like it's a simple change, people will often just like push directly to master. It'll run through like a suite of automated tests, hit a Canary server, we're five Canary servers now, see 75,000 successful requests like without any errors. And the errors for us are, you know, like problems for users. Like that's generally 500s, but like, like there are a couple other things that like we just are like, oh, that's bad. Let's pull back. If it passes those 75,000 requests, we yeah just deploy to production. That whole process takes 30, 40 minutes. It's a little slow right now, and we want to get it faster. And we have absolutely no manual QA. I think it was interesting you said the other end of the spectrum, because the place I was at before, we were deploy- deploying once a week when things were working well. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the spectrum is interesting. Yeah, the spectrum for sure can be pushed. I think the one of the first places I worked at professionally, we served Walmart Brazil. And we used to deploy once every three months for third-party consultancies that served Walmart. And it was like weekend deploys overnight. Everyone was in the same room. It was a battle to get things uh, into production. I worked at a Java shop once. I want to say it was once a month. It might have been every other month, but it was like definitely not more frequent than once a month. And 
there was this whole release process. And like, if you were working on the release, everybody would just get in a room who was doing that. And it was just going through and bumping version numbers and like all this, like very formal, just to get the, the artifacts in a state where then after we did all the release work, then it could be deployed. And that was all very manual. It was an all day process to, to get a release out. This is a web app, by the way. It was not like a <laughs> anything different fundamentally than what we're doing. Yeah, and I should say, like, what I, what I was talking about with the like twelve times a day. That's like our backend servers. You know, like our mobile clients. You know, like iOS and Android. That's probably like once a week, and like it's a little bit more of a kind of like traditional QA process there, like where there is somebody actually clicking through buttons, and just because of like the limitations of the app store, we're trying to get around that actually, if we can, and like do more web web based stuff with Flutter, but. That's a longer project. I'm curious, at Class Dojo, do you, do you have some sort of a queue? Like you mentioned, like somebody makes a commit, you know, they, they push it straight to master. And if it passes all the tests, it goes in. Like what happens if five people do that at once, you know, like around the same time when like, you know, they're all like potentially conflicting with one another? Like how does that work out? There is a queue, but like things can kind of catch up to the previous ones and like supersede it. So like if like all of us, like all four of us just committed at the same time, your commit would start running through the tests and then like mine would run through afterwards. And then like at some point I might catch up. And at that point, then that would supersede it. If it doesn't catch up, we would just do Canary, like the Canary things, like your your commit would go to Canary or, you know, like five containers that are like running serving real traffic. And then mine would. And then like they can deploy kind of like the deploys can happen at the same time. So yeah, it is one of the reasons that we want to make sure our pipeline is fast, because like if that like process is slower, like you you kind of like get backed up and it makes it like one of the benefits of the like very quick often deploys is like when something goes wrong, like if there's like a performance problem or something, it's like pretty easy to be like, OK, I saw somebody just made a commit here and suddenly things started going bad. It's probably that commit. Let's just deploy the previous version and like look at it later to like fix yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the reasons I would like to have something closer to what y'all have is right now it's what we have is like we, we commit something and if it gets reviewed on the same day, it gets merged and then the next day it goes to staging and by the end of the day it goes to production. By the time it's in production, I don't even remember what I committed last. So for me to like be looking at what's rolling out and, and be aware of what effect that's having in production, that's not going to happen. And the faster you make the code you wrote rich production, the more interested you're going to be into looking into your, your monitoring, looking at errors happening in production to see whether something wrong is happening. So sort of like getting over this wall of like getting feature developers to look at monitoring, look at production and have a baseline of what is normal and quickly know whether something is off, I think only happens naturally if you have code reaching production quickly. It also changes the kind of code that you can get to production. Like if I want to debug something, like if I see something like weird is happening for like some users, you know, like say we've got like a school with like 30,000 teachers in it and like weird stuff is happening at that school. Like I can get like a sample log, like a little bit of extra logging in production in 30 minutes and then look at that. So like that, like the, the time it takes to like solve a problem, if you go through code review and then the staging and then it gets to production, like you're, you're talking like days versus hours to kind of like hopefully resolve in whatever weird thing is happening. Yeah, for sure. There's a funny story about this. Recently, we had a fire. I don't remember what fire it was, but we had to, to make an announcement for users and our announcements were only available for logged in pages, but we were affecting logged off users too. So our thinking there was, well, can we use, was it Optimizely? 
Yeah, Otherwise, we tried like, that first. Yeah. So like we, we can't get our, our code into production to put the announcement there uh, quickly. Let's try to use something like that. I think Optimizely is actually a very interesting case for us because it does give you that like instant change in production once you've got it set up. So I think we could we could do a little proving out the concept of what happens if you make a change in production, monitor just that change, roll back just that change, get people more comfortable with what that could look like. So one of the one of the things we've talked about in conversations around like, you know, what would our ideal process be? Like if there were no technical barriers, what would we ideally do? And one of the things that comes up about having steps between when the code is written and when it's in production, one of the things I don't think we mentioned is that we do PRs for everything. Like every before we merge something into master, it's always somebody else has reviewed it and approved it. So that's like another separate <laughs> bottleneck to deploys implicitly. One of the things that always comes up is, you know, Google famously is like, well, we're really good at undoing changes. So we'll roll something out to like 0.02% of our traffic. And if we start seeing a big spike in problems, we'll just roll it back. And for search results, maybe that's not a big deal or something like that. But we're talking about students and teachers here. And, you know, disrupting a, a teacher's class is like something we really don't want to do, even like briefly, especially if like, God forbid, it's something like data loss, you know, where it's like we we messed up and we can't just go back to the previous commit and have everything be fine. It's like we have to actually go go in and do repairs. And that's always a seems to be a bit of an inherent trade off, which is to say that like the more time you invest up front, the less likelihood that there's going to be pain or even like damage to user data uh, or user experience. So I'm kind of curious, like, you know, how do you see that at Class Dojo? Is that like those think or think about those trade offs? I mean, I think there's a little bit of a false dichotomy there. Like I, like, I think having a low barrier to getting stuff into production and to fixing errors, to fixing, like, see, like, if there's, like, a low barrier to, like, instrumenting 400s better or to fixing 500s, it makes it a lot easier to fix those. So we are able to fix those quicker and, like, get kind of, like, to a higher level of quality where fewer people are hitting errors overall. And then when somebody does hit an error that like we're able to detect it on Canary so that like, say like something does go wrong, hopefully what's happening is like we stop it as soon as like a single person is affected, you know, like are able to see that. And like that when that person retries from, for the most part, you know, like that thing will go through. I think there's a lot of like, a lot of why we do continuous delivery like this is to get to that level of quality that like we can detect it. Like I, I see what you're saying about like, yeah, like the more time you spend, the more likely you are to like find stuff. But we tend to focus a lot more on the, like, we want to detect anything going wrong at all. And like, we've got like a zero defect policy versus the upfront discovering anything that could possibly go wrong. Zero defect. Does that mean like, talk to me about that. How, how does that work? <laughs> like, what, what, is, what does a zero defect policy mean to you at Class Dojo? For all of our servers, like there, we just shouldn't have 500. That's like the low bar is like, if we say something is an error, it shouldn't happen. Like the easiest bar to like have for anything is zero. Like if you've got a bar of like, oh, we can have like up to a hundred bad things happening. That's a really, in like an hour, that's a really hard bar to keep. And it's like really hard to alert on. And like the closer you can get that to zero. And like, we, we never do quite get it to zero. Like the easier it is to do alerting and like to detect when things are going wrong. So that's like part of it. Part of it is like, if like we push something out and like there's any problem that, that like our customer team reports that like users report that we like detect, we fix it. Like that's just kind of like, as part of our current work, like that just goes to the top of the queue. Like that's kind of like, we don't need a, much of a discussion. Like we try not to have like the P0, P1, P2, like that whole system that a lot of places have. We just have a, that's the next thing that you do if, if like something's broken. And if something is like low, is legitimately just like, oh, that isn't important. Like that's not desired. 
we might just say, okay, we're just never fixing this. Like we don't have like a backlog or anything like that. It's just, this does not seem, you know, like the app is work isn't intended. We're never fixing it. We're just throwing that away and saying like, if it is important, it'll come back up. Gotcha. So you mentioned like doing a, if there is a bug reported, like, or, or, you know, 500 happens or something like that. You said you like roll it back very quickly. Is that a manual process? Or is that just like, it happens? Like, like with Canary, like with the Canary yeah. test thing, it just happens. Like it just stops it like in production. In production, I mean, like we don't have a button to revert back, but it, we need somebody to say like, oh, what should we revert back to? Because a lot of the time for us, like a lot of our problems, it might be a dependency is having issues. Like one of like the things that we depend on, say like for payments, oh, they're having issues, which means that like we're reporting there are problems, but like rolling back to a previous version of our app, if they're having issues, like that doesn't fix anything. So we don't want to necessarily, you know, like roll back automatically, but we do have a button that says like, you know, like where do you want to go back to? And then like, it will go back to that. Do you have a sense of whether you frequently encounter issues in production where it's not clear where to roll back from or back to, or is it pretty much you have the change, the most recent change that went in, you're just going to do that one. I mean, it's pretty rare for us to need to roll back or like roll forward for the most part. Like as far as like fires go, as far as like outages, it's like, you know, like looking through, it's like config changes pipeline changes, infra changes, database problems. Like, like those are kind of like where our issues are, migrations. Those are the things that could cause problems for us. And like code changes, like, like I can think of the last time that like, I remember like rolling back to fix something, but it was probably like months ago. It'll get caught by Canary if like there is an actual issue. And like for the most part, we're able to fix it quickly because we know exactly if some of these commit went in and it's like, oh, that's causing the problem. They're looking at it. They're alerted. Like they're like, "Oh, Canary failed." You know, they're just rolling forward and like fixing it because they've got that immediate feedback on like, "Oh, your thing was broken." You just didn't think of all of the weird situations that users can get into. Okay, like fix it. Yeah, that's a really strong argument, I think, because uh, one of the early horror stories, fires that Nordic had before I joined, even was uh, there was this deploy, and at some point, an app server went to 100% CPU. And then they restarted the, the app server. And then another app server went to 100% CPU. And they restarted that one. And then suddenly, multiple app servers started going 100% CPU. And it was a very difficult diagnosing problem. And in the end, when they finally found what happened was it was a, an endless loop on login code. Some specific scenario, when you logged in, you would put Ruby in a, an endless loop. And then the, the server would, one process would go to 100% CPU, and then another process would go to 100% CPU. And then eventually all the, I think, 32 processes we ran per, per machine would go to 100%, and we would have to restart that machine. But until we were able to nail down to that specific commit in a deployment that had, who knows, hundreds of commits, it was very difficult. I think that was like 2014, if I remember right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's compelling because having been here just a couple months, I've seen a wide variety in the complexity of our deploys day by day. Sometimes we have 20 or 30 things that could be touching shared areas. And the way we test those definitely still has me a little uncertain. I'm new. I, I don't have the same confidence about where the bugs are likely to be. But as I see that level of complexity increasing, as we're trying to scale up our engineering organization in general, we have a challenge here where it's going to get harder and harder to manage the things that need to go out on a day-to-day -day basis if we're trying to do them all at once. 
So I'm curious about, I think an area where we, it sounds like we have more commonalities is like you mentioned like canaries. I think, I mean, we use, I think different terminology, but I'm curious to just talk through at Class Dojo, you put a deploy out there. You're like, I think this is ready to go. The commit is, is going through the testing phase. What all does it get put through on the Canary server? Like what, what what's actually happening to determine whether this commit is ready to be deployed or not? We start sending it real traffic. So like after it's gone through, you know, like it's run through tests, it's done any migrations it needs to do, it lints. We start sending real production traffic to it to see if anything goes wrong. And like we've got like a lot of confidence in in that detection. So like if it sees a single, you know, like what we count as an error, it failed Canary. So is that duplicate traffic or is that like they're they're getting load balanced to that server and only to that server? They're getting load balanced. We don't do it like on a per user basis. So like we're not kind of like saying like this user only gets Canary servers. It's just it's you know like round robining every single request. Some of them get to Canary. And then like we chose 75,000 requests is like a good number to detect stuff. That's just something that we kind of like determined. We like looked at an outage, like we looked at something that's slipped past Canary and it's like, it, it, it'd be nice, like this was like very rare, but it's simply nice to detect this. How many requests would we need to see to be like 95% confident that we would catch it? And that was like 75K, so that's what we do. Interesting. So how does that work if you have like database schema changes? So database schema changes, we do approach a little bit differently than the rest than like, cause like those are bigger changes and they're more dangerous, but yeah, like we, we run those before Canary. So like if they've passed the tests, we will run the database migration that will not have any tests like the database migration, like those commits go in just like only migrating the database, like only doing that migration. Oh, sure. So I, I should give a more specific example. So let's say, and maybe you just always are careful about backwards compatibility in this way, but like, let's say that you're, you like rename a column or something. If that runs on the production database, then like, well, whether you're load balancing or not, somebody's going to disagree about what that column is named. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah we're, we're just careful with backwards compatibility. Like, that's just like, we just wouldn't rename a column. Like we'd rename it in like the query builder in our like in the querying layer to like make things nicer for people. But we're not going to rename it in the database because like you said, it's, it's hard to do that all or nothing deploy, like that all or nothing migration. So we we don't. So if you ever need to clean something up, like you got just like a ton of data that's like it's a problem that this is still on here. Do you do multiple deploys and like one is to transition away and then yeah. yeah, exactly. So we like you know like we'll do the code deploy to stop kind of like referencing that column or like that table. That deploy gets fully out and then we do the migration and the migrations do get. We've got a much stronger policy around PRs. Like we've got two people who are qualified to review these PRs in the organization. That's me and our CTO. And if it doesn't pass that review process, we don't merge it in. Like we, we talk about it, we do training. Like migrations, they're hard. They are easy to get wrong. Like we treat them closer to the NASA kind of like end of the spectrum versus everything else. Like we're, we're a little closer. Well, like we're not as kind of like, oh, it's easy to fix if something goes wrong. It's easy to detect if something goes wrong. Like we have to actually, you know, put some care into it. Yeah, so it sounds like comparing our two like strategies that we're currently using, and it, you may have picked up on the fact that we're interested in moving more in this direction. I don't know if we, we're pretty subtle about it, but uh, <laughs> it sounds like one way of saying it is that you have sort of classifications of commits and of PRs, and depending on what's being changed, you do more or less review depending on that. Whereas ours are a lot closer together in terms of like, they're all pretty similar. Like we do also have some extra like checklists and stuff if there's a migration, but percentage wise, it's like, they're not like those get 10 X more attention. Whereas it sounds like in your case, it's like almost all commits get very little attention and then a few get a lot of attention. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty close. Like, and like we do do, you know, like a lot of commits, like we do do pull requests. We like, we do code reviews. Sometimes we do the code reviews after it's been merged because we, we don't do blocking code reviews, but we do do code reviews. When we were doing something hard, like 
we might do like more than code reviews. We might do kind of like a code walkthrough meeting where like we're like really getting multiple people together to kind of like review it in a more careful way. We've got, you know, like staging, thinking of it as like a classification where the default is pretty like laissez-faire, like do what you want, but you can do more careful stuff if you need to. Do you have that classification actually outlined somewhere? Or is it more like we have migrations and that's one end of the spectrum and we have everything else. And sometimes we want to do a little more. It's definitely more implicit. It's say you just joined the company. We're going to get you to like get all of your code code reviewed before you merge it in. It's a good learning opportunity. It's a good chance to like, you're hopefully pairing with people a lot. We'll have like a little bit more guardrails, a little bit more structure while you're at that stage. Say you're doing something super hard. Like you will probably decide I would like this code reviewed. Like this would be super useful. I'm worried about this. Like, but we trust our engineers to like decide the right level of kind of like inspection for their code. And then we trust our monitoring. So like if somebody is being like a little, like not writing enough tests and like they're breaking production, like they're breaking the deployment pipeline, like that doesn't happen very often. But if it did, like we just have a, you know, like talk about, I noticed you're not writing that many tests. Can we teach you better testing strategies so you can get more of your code under test to detect this stuff? I noticed you fixed the defect without writing a test for it first, doing the TDD thing. Let's practice fixing this new defect so that like we can get you able to develop in our way, like able to develop safely in a system that we've got. You mentioned something like 12 monolith deploys a day. How many migrations a week or a month? It really depends on what teams are working on. I'd say probably about like one or two migrations a week is probably normal for us. Do you have a sense, Alec, for us, how it looks like? No, but if it's like migrations per deploy, the number of times we're doing a deployment, we have to consider a migration, maybe one out of four or something like that. And often they're very small. We just have to like, confirm that they're small, but just because, yeah, we were doing 10, 15 different changes and one of them has a migration. So I think, yeah, I could see the value in those going through a different process and speeding up the rest of the things. So one thing I was really curious to ask you, Will, is how do you go about like maintaining the harnesses for the canaries? Do feature developers add stuff to the canary checks? How does that work? Number one, we've got a logging taxonomy. You know, like there's like console.error, like bad thing happens. We've got our own custom one where it's just like, this is a server error that we should fix. This is a client error that we should fix. This is just like, we're curious about something. So like we've got those kind of like three levels of things that we can log. Anytime we log, this is an error, like a server error. That's the kind of thing that we want to cancel Canary for. How it's actually set up is like, we just, we're on Nomad rather than Kubernetes, similar deal, container orchestration. You know, like we just say, hey, run five containers with this image. And then we pull a status URL to see, hey, have you seen an error? If you see an error, then we tell you to shut down. And that's kind of it. And then so like everything goes back to the like, whenever you say, hey, there's an error. If there's a 500, we, you know, like say, oh, there's an error. If there's any uncaught error, it's just by default an error. And like, that's kind of it. So there's not like any specific canary checks. You know, it's really, did you serve 75,000 requests without seeing anything that is a server error, according to our taxonomy? And then then you're good. I see, I see, I see. So, so it wires into unhandled exceptions and errors that are foreseen by feature developers. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you might say, like, oh, if this is a bad state, I might put, like, a, you know, like explicit, like, error log with, like, the details that you need to go debug that bad state. But for the most part, it's just... You know, like if you're you know, making a database request, we've got a timeout on that. So like if something is too slow, that's an error. 
if something is unable to insert, that's an error. If something by default, like like there's a kind of like a lot of like reasonable defaults for like what's an error for us, and that's those things, five hundreds. So I'm curious. You mentioned this sort of like zero defect policy being kind of like the key to having enough confidence to like do stuff like this. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, have you always had that? Like you've been there seven years. So has that been like since day one, like you're just like no zero defects always or like, was there a point where you had a bunch and then you had a concerted effort to to drop it? So it, we, we've gotten better at this over the years. When I joined, like I, I was super like this was basically essentially my first engineering job and i had no idea what i was doing and we had this great guy greg who was kind of like setting the direction for the engineering team he's still around and like that's like one of the things that he really pushed for is just like and at the time like we didn't have kind of like an automated canary like he you know like you you would push and then like you would just go and watch the canary logs like that was just like one of the things that you did whenever you were deploying is like you had to go watch the canary logs to make sure nothing was going wrong so like things have gotten better since then. And like, I, I like took a look recently at some of like our old pictures of like our info radiators in the office. And there were pictures with like, oh, like we had like, you know, hundreds of 500s in an hour, which is crazy to me now. Like we had like, like all of these like logged errors and like, yeah. So like we are doing a lot more traffic now with a lot fewer errors. Like I'm pretty proud of like where we're at with that stuff. But I do think that kind of like that focus on like you're building something, build it right, build it so that it like works and is maintainable. Like for us, like that's hopefully how we're getting long-term speed is that you build something once and, you know, like there's always going to be something, but like for the most part, it just works. You mentioned like a database timeout. Are there other places where you integrate performance related errors uh, into your canary testing? And this is just like our production service too. Anytime we are making like a network request, we want to make sure we've got that wrapped in the timeout. We want to have like very clear attribution for like when something goes wrong, we like lose, lose a request or like somebody else loses one of our requests. Like we want to, you know, like have an error stack trace that points to this dependency is like not working right. So like we've got that level of stuff. So like if something is deploying, like we're seeing like lots of slow, like a slow query, you know, it's like, oh, that took more than, depends on like the dependency, but like that took more than two seconds or five seconds or whatever it is like, oh goodness, you know, cancel the deploy. That's probably a bad sign. And then we've got like a lot of monitoring on our servers. So, or sorry, on our databases. So like if you started, I don't know, like doing in-memory sorts in like suddenly alarms are going to go off. If like our you know, like our Mongo, like disk utilization popped up a bit, like alarms are going to go off, like like all of the stuff that you kind of expect. Okay. Is that all at the more the kind of, not necessarily physical, but is it parameterized by like what area of code it's in at all? This query can't be slow. This query can be slow. Yeah, yeah. We do a little bit there. So like, and like we do it like when we see, you know, like say like, for the awards reports that we do, like how is a student doing in class? Like what, what feedback have they been given? If like you're doing a query for, for, you know, like a class for a year, that's going to take a lot of time. You know, that might take 10 seconds sometimes. We'll probably configure it like not, there are basically exceptions to our defaults. It's not like we kind of like configured it like area by area, I'd say. And there's nothing automated that's like last time this query was taking this long, now it's taking this long. Look into that. No. We don't really have like named queries, if that makes sense. Like we, like we don't have kind of like this query is doing this so that we can compare the queries by names. We do have alerts on like if queries to a table or databases are slowing down, like we're we're going to make a lot, lot of red happen everywhere. But I wonder about how uh, front-end testing factors into this. So it, maybe we could talk about briefly like how we do like evaluate whether there's like a regression in the front-end I and mean, then compare. 
I don't know, Alec, you want to talk about that? Sure. So, I mean, we do have we have a some amount of automated tests in Cyprus, and those are our our last automated line of defense, I guess. Well, that and Percy to do visual screenshot analysis. Percy could be interesting to talk about, but yeah, we'll talk about Cyprus. I would say, having not been there that long and worked or worked on the test that much, that we do tend to be stingy with our Cyprus tests, and I generally agree with that approach. That we try to pick cases that we think are high value and likely to touch a couple of things. Whereas I don't have a great personal visibility into our lower level tests, so I can't say for sure that we will take those and we'll do more focus testing there. But based on everything I've seen, we do. We do a lot more focus testing at the unit level and higher. And then when we get up to something like Cypress, we're testing just automated. And then once we've gone through that, we look at things manually. Generally speaking, we'll look at all of the changes that have come in. We'll try to figure out what areas of the site are touched. We have some knowledge generally of overlapping areas. So we might say, okay, we're going to prioritize testing this particular overlap between those two areas since they were both touched. And then if we discover an issue there as part of the cycle, we'll generally we'll ask for a fix or a revert of that particular change. We almost, in my experience, we almost always get it. I would say happens probably less than less than one out of four times. But when it does happen, 95% of the time we get a, a fix or a revert that day. Once we have the fix in, we don't We'll run the Cypress test again. We'll run the rest of the automated stuff again. We will not manually check everything. We will try to be aware of what areas are being touched and make sure we are checking those again. But there is a little bit of a gap there. If something is found later on, I mean, we do a little bit of monitoring when it goes to production. And occasionally, it's actually kind of like you were describing where we sit. We do sit and watch the logs. <laughs> nice. For That's the end of the, the QA testers day is to watch the production logs for 15 minutes. And yeah, if we see something there, then usually it means it's something that we missed in staging and won't have a great idea how to address. So we'll try to scramble someone in engineering immediately to look at it. Sometimes we know what it is and can address it ourselves by rolling back or trying to get a fix out. But that's very rare that we actually have to do anything on production. I think we tend to be conservative and as such don't have to do a lot of production scrambling at least not for regressions that we introduce. I guess for a perspective on, on front-end stability, you mentioned before, Will, about the zero defect policy. And I was while folks were talking, I was looking at our numbers in Bugsnag. For the past hour, discounting invalid authenticity token from like people who try to make requests when their login had expired, we had 20 errors in Rails. But in JavaScript, we had 700. <laughs> The front end is just like so difficult to get to zero defects because like, for instance, today we're talking about Dark Reader. And apparently if you go into our website with Dark Reader enabled in Firefox, it destroys your, your tab and makes your browser unusable. How do we protect against that proactively? It's really difficult, really difficult like uh, foresee what extensions people are going to have or what combinations of extensions are going to destroy your website. And I'm, I'm curious whether that plays a role into like the zero defects policy at CodeDojo, the fact that I think CodeDojo's app is mostly mobile. Yeah, I'd say it's mostly mobile because like it's a communication platform between like teachers and parents for the most part. So like there's a lot of that that is just people are, you know, like on their phones, like DMing with the teacher or the teacher is like sharing cute pictures of the classroom home. There's definitely like a lot like the app is the web app is, is important. Like teachers will project it often so that they can kind of like help manage their class during the day. 
And then you know, like the student app, like the students are able to like draw and like work on their portfolios in that app. So like the web app is important. It's hard though. We definitely see more errors on the web app front end. It is so much harder to test than on the back end. Like the back end, it feels like you've got like well-isolated resources that you can test. You've got well-isolated models that you can test. And like, like those like tests are like, you know, pretty straightforward to write for the most part. And it's like pretty straightforward to monitor. But yeah, like the front ends are just harder. Well, do you get, I mean, testing aside, like, like Juliana was saying, like the main problem we have with our front end bug reports is that they're just dominated by false positives. It's just a bunch of, well, arguably they are or are not false positives, but it's basically stuff we can't fix. It's like somebody has a browser extension or something like that. That's just like blowing up the virtual DOM, you know, there's so many different combinations of them and they all break different parts of the site or throw different errors, you know, for different reasons. They're trying to ping some server in Russia, you know, it's like, that's <laughs> not our code, right? Yeah. But it's just, yeah, it just floods the the logs. And so it's really hard to tell if anything's actually wrong. I mean, it's as far from zero defects as you can get. And we haven't found any way to tame that noise. I don't know if you have. Yeah, I mean, we've got the same problem. We definitely have the same problem of like, sometimes people will have like, that's clearly not our bug. I think what we've done on the front ends for the most part is like limit the reporting of those bugs, like the crashes to make sure it's like it, it is happening from within our code, not from within somebody else's code. Like I think you like we hook into the window dot on error, I believe. So like do like like kind of like the reporting of like, oh, something went wrong that I didn't expect on the front end and send that to the back end. And then like I think we do some filtering there and like distinguishing between between like, oh, something bad happened for this user because they've got like a weird extension. Like we can't fix that. There's just no way that we can fix that. But like we, we definitely want to like count the things that are defects for us are the things that we can we control, we can fix, we can make better. Like it's the things that like, yeah, like like it's not like we're promising if you somehow get into our app on like IE6, like, well, it's just not gonna work. We've got a blocker, but like if you somehow bypass our blocker, that's like not what we're trying to do. We're trying to just get it like solid for people. I have to think that. If we had zero defects and we saw this adoption of this new like extension that drove up our errors, I feel like we could react to that. I feel like we could be like, okay, we're seeing this come in. Let's block that one off because we're, if we had that standard already, I think it's once it's, once it's already a flood and then, oh, here's another part of the flood coming in. What are you going to do? But one, if you actually have a standard of zero defects and then you're like, oh, here's a big new source of defects, you can decide, okay, we're going to funnel those into the null bucket. Maybe we produce a report once a month to see like, is that getting bigger? Just so it, the executive team can prioritize spending on it if they need to. But yeah, I feel like from the perspective of the average engineer who is going to be looking at the bugs, you don't ever want them to see that unless you're going to be spending time to fix it. Yeah. So a problem though, is that specifically with like JavaScript errors is that in a lot of cases, it appears to be coming from within our code because, or code that we compiled to, like not that we wrote, but you know, like framework or language level, whatever, because what the extension does is it rearranges the page in such a way that something that should be there is no longer there or is like wrapped in something else and, and something like that, which makes it hard to tell because in a lot of cases, the symptom that we get is something that's like, oh, E dot replace node is undefined. And then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, I look at like, <laughs> right, yeah. And, and so we look at that and it's like, well, that's completely impossible for us to reproduce. It's just like some extension did something. And we don't know what extension or what it did, but it definitely did something and something wasn't where it was according to our code. <laughs> to this day, I'm not sure how to, like, other than, I mean, we can just silence them all, but then we don't even see spikes. So 
it's yeah not an easy problem it's a huge problem for us too like the only thing that comes to mind is like categorizing like the new versus old like having some way of like marking as like probably okay i have no clue how to do good front-end like error detection like we, we, we don't have a canary for our like front-end deploys like we just haven't managed to get that solid enough yeah like the cypress tests are good just tests are good but yeah like it, it, it is just a harder problem to solve i wonder if that's perhaps a good strategy where like splitting up backend and frontend splitting up like the most solid uh to deploy versus the most uncertain and trying to work our way towards this continuous deployment well, I was also, I was, Juliana, it's funny, you were looking up our, our bug snag tallies. I was also looking them up at the same time for the same reason. And one thing I noticed is that, like, if you look at our backend, so our, our sort of legacy backend is Rails. That's like what most of our backend code historically was written in. But we've been increasingly using Haskell. And so most of our traffic now goes through Haskell, even though most of our lines of code are still Rails. And currently we have 180 open different types of like issue and on the Rails side. And only five on Haskell's. So that's like definitely we could get we could get that down to zero. I think two out of the five were timeouts or something. Like so that seems totally fine. And then again, like Elm versus JS, like Elm we have zero, which is normal. And JS is like seven hundred or whatever, you know, some exorbitant number. And so it seems like if we were to, you know, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but if we were to try and adopt a, a class dojo like strategy, maybe the place to start would be just on the Haskell side, because there we actually could get down to the like zero defect policy. And then if we were to deploy that more rapidly with less upfront verification, we would get a pretty strong signal right away if something was wrong. Yeah. Haskell things with no migrations. Start shoving them out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could. <laughs> That's actually, I, I mean, a lot of the Haskell quiz engine, like the the most trafficked part of the site that was actually done without QA in a lot of cases. But it's interesting because we started that way in the Haskell services. Like we, we had a separate repo, we had continuous deployment. You ran through CI and it stopped midway through to ask you whether you wanted to apply that specific commit to production. And I don't have the context on why we went back. I kind of wish we had Jasper. It's a tangent. We, yeah, we could we could follow up about that later. But yeah, the, the, the point being like the, the defect rate gap, I think is pretty substantial there. And that's like a pretty easy place to draw the line if we will for context, like we're really big on improving through like small controlled experiments. And so whenever we're like interested in moving in a particular direction, we're always like trying to find some small low risk way to take a step in that direction and validate it and see if it works. And then if that works well, then like, What's the next step we can take? So my brain just immediately goes to like, what's an experiment we could do to try this out <laughs> and see if we like it or not? And yeah, to, to Juliana's point, to some extent, we we already have done a similar experiment. It's not, it's not quite the same. Like we don't have like canaries or anything like that. And maybe that was the bridge we, we missed crossing, I think, at some point. We had continuous deployment for those Haskell apps when they were very low risk. I remember we had them on content creation, which was an internal too. Only Nord anchors would use it. But at some point, when we started doing other stuff in, in Haskell, I think this dilemma of like, should we compromise stability and keep this? And the way to improve stability was to slow it down and make it go through QA. I wonder how the what the monitoring situation was like. My impression is generally monitoring tools have just improved a heck of a lot over the last five years. So maybe it's easier now to, to see whether your Haskell deploy actually caused a problem. Yeah, that's true, because like, when we started out with Haskell, I think we had basically no monitoring. 
And at some point, we wanted to standardize monitoring, and we wrote our own New Relic library for Haskell. But it wasn't great. It wasn't as great as New Relic is for Rails, for instance. And I think things started to get really nice when we adopted uh, Honeycomb. Well, I've heard of Honeycomb. That's the like log, like lets you do like good like log tracing. Is that right? Where like everything is a log, and you can everything is a span, and you can have as large spans as you want. Like their idea is, you put everything, absolutely everything you want and can on the spans, so you can sort of like correlate why this thing got slower. Oh, the span took five seconds versus fifteen milliseconds. Why? Oh, all these OS level metrics on this span were different than all other spans because you're capturing all of that information to this big fat span. Yeah, and one of the things that makes it great for, for this sort of thing, I think is like on New Relic, we had to wait three minutes for us to see what happened to production. It has a three minute lag compared to what's real time. In Datadog, we have a 15 second lag. In Honeycomb, there's no lag. And we can get sub-second precision on monitoring. If you like zoom in, you can see uh, the numbers on lower than per second precision, which is amazing. We actually did another podcast episode talking to Jessica Kerr, who works at Honeycomb. If you want to learn more about Honeycomb. <laughs> that whole episode ended up being like, this is a bit of a spoiler, just like a nonstop pitch for Honeycomb. <laughs> was, They're pretty good at that. I'm just such a big fanboy. <laughs> not, not from Jessica's end. <laughs> like from everybody's end. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> So here's something I'm curious about is back at the beginning of the conversation, Will, you mentioned like it's like a, there's a 30 to 40 minutes, I think you said, to like wait for all the tests to run. We used to be in a similar boat. I think it was like even like 50 minutes at one point. Mm -hmm. That was the worst. The tests run in three minutes. It's just the whole pipeline takes about 40. So that's like waiting for the Canary service to say they're good. That's doing the deploy. That's building like extra images for other stuff. Like it, it's the whole thing. Got it. So we also got our tests down to about three minutes. And I'm curious if, A, if, if your tests were just like always that fast or if- No, like, it... <laughs> no, they were, they were much slower for a while. So what, so what did you do to get, to get them faster? I'm curious how it compares to what we did. So some of it was just like speeding up code. And like one of the fun things was just like one speeding up fixture resets. Like we do, I guess I should take a couple steps back. We really value having tests that hit like real databases because like the database is kind of like an, it feels to us like an integral part of the application. If you're testing a route, we want to actually spin up a server and hit that server and then like see it do its work. So like we're, we're not trying to do the kind of like the very, I don't know like how you describe it, like unit testing thing where you like you have kind of like injected everything. Like we, we're trying to like create a realistic-ish production environment locally with like fixture data. And that does mean that like, like the tests were like a little slow. Like if you're recreating the full set of fixtures between each test, that takes some time to like import a couple hundred or thousand items into your fixtures to like reset it. So like one of the main things we did is speed up the fixture resets. So we did like a lot of stuff on both like Mongo and like MySQL, our two main databases, to get those fixture resets fast. Only resetting the tables that were necessary, and like you know trying to like look for uh, performance improvements that we could do in there. And then those are like such hotspots that we like really tried to like nail the code. So like in TypeScript, which is what we're using for our backend, anytime you use like await x. Like if you just do like await one, one of the things you're implicitly saying is like, oh, hey, event loop, go do your thing and then come back here. Just like trying to like avoid unnecessary awaits is like one one like little trick that like actually sped up production a little bit too, but like we were mostly trying to speed up the tests by doing that. And then beyond that, like paralyzing the tests. So, you know, like we've got our like local 
you know, container, like Docker containers for our databases and for like the test runner. And we parallelize them and then like run them on a fast machine. So like we've got like a, you know, make test fast command that like does that. I've been messing around a little bit with trying to like get it faster by like leaving the containers up, which is like just like a little sketchier, a little bit less solid. But like if you do that, you can get sub one minute. Like looking, I think we can get it sub 30 seconds if we do like a little bit more work there to like make sure we're doing like a good distribution of tests across the containers. Like some tests are much slower than others. And like if you, so we've got like some containers finish, finishing and you know, like 30 seconds, other containers finishing like a minute. And then like if you're doing per- persistent containers, you can like run a lot more of them because like you're not paying that like container startup time. And this is this is for backend. Yeah, backend, backend. Okay. I think our numbers involve like backend tests, front end tests. So like running the Ruby unit tests, running like Rails integration tests, running Capybara tests. And those tests were the the really slow ones. We had one test file that took 18 minutes at some point. Wow. And it kind of makes sense as like a single file, whatever it was doing. But splitting up into multiple files is what allowed us to go below 18 minutes in the whole test suite because like you can't parallelize things to take less than 18 minutes if a single file takes those 18 minutes. But that's assuming it needs to get run every time. Exactly. So the way we got to, <laughs> to three minutes per test run, that's our average for feature branches. The way we got there was using a library called Shake from uh, Haskell, which is kind of like make it's a build tool. And it allows us to track dependencies, track changes. And we put some code into our RSpec that allows us to track what files were touched while running a test. So we know exactly which files we need to watch to decide if that test has to change. And using these two things in combination allowed us to not run the tests that were not necessary. So we brought the average down to, to three minutes. It has regressed a little bit since we did that, but that was the way we found to, to make all those kinds of tests get down to, to that long. I didn't know about that. So that's very cool. Do we track the tests that we're not running frequently? Like, are we doing something to be like, every once in a while, we should run that? We do. On the master branch, we run shake without cache. So we run everything. And on, on the master branch, the entire CI run takes 20 minutes right now. But it, it has space for optimization because we're using uh, this German host called Hatzner that lets us run bare metal Ryzen 9 5950X machines that are 16 cores. And when you SSH in and look at the machine, you run top, you see a, a load average of 200 while the CI test suite is running. So we're probably paying a heavy cost in, in context switching that could be optimized by making fewer things run in parallel in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so our, our front end ones are, I think they're probably about 10 minutes right now. I haven't checked, but like Cypress is just not that fast. Browsers aren't generally. Cool. Any other topics we want to make sure and touch on before we uh, move on to picks? I'd love to talk a bit about feature flags because I think like both of us are like using using those to like get code into production. And I'm like curious, how do you all use them? Like, are they backend only? Are they front end backend? I can talk about that. I think they're front end backend, but they might be backend only. They're managed through a Ruby package called Flipper, and we have I don't know, not not that many of them. Maybe there's 50 total. I'd say on a weekly basis, there might be six to 10 that are different between our staging and our production environment. There are some we use just to like disable functionality in staging. That's all they're used for, really. Sometimes they will also be used to disable functionality in production if we need to, but 
mostly they, the reason they still exist is to keep staging running easily. We use them for a rollout to a degree where if we have a larger feature that's split across PRs, most of the time get a feature flag and as much as possible, the pieces of that will be hidden behind the feature flag. I would say it's not, it's not a, like a universal thing in that it's fairly frequent that like a, if it's a feature flag about adding a new piece of data, the code that displays the data may not be behind the feature flag with the expectation that it'll never be in there in the first place. And generally, my experience is that coding practice is very defensive so that if the data is not in there, the front end's fine. So yeah, and then we'll do some we'll do some focus testing on everything that was behind that feature flag. If that looks good, then we'll turn it on in production. Maybe occasionally use it for like more kind of targeted rollout of features, but I don't think I've seen that particularly. I remember historically we had some practice of like getting a group of sort of like test classes or test teachers that were really close to us and making sure that this feature is only rolled out to those teachers. Another use we have for feature flags is like fire containment. So we have a, a feature flag, for instance, that slows down the website. Before a, a user sends a request, it, it makes them wait for, I don't know, five seconds before the request is actually sent out. Like if we have database slowness, for instance, and we have uh, 100,000 requests per minute at this second, well, we can bring that down with a feature flag by making it so every user click takes five seconds to actually send the request. Users are going to feel websites sluggish, but at least it's going to work. It's not going to bring everything down. Why would delaying the speed? I'm a little, I guess I'm just a little confused. Delaying the speed of the clicks? Well, because basically the, the number of requests per minute we have on the, on the server is a factor of how quickly the students click on our, on our website. Because in a sense, like a big part of No Red Ink is kind of like a game where students have a quiz and they have to answer the, the right stuff, drag the things into right places, and click a button to submit. And that happens on average over all types of quizzes one, once every 13 seconds. If we can slow that down by some factor, and we're at like 120,000 requests per minute, we can bring that down to 90, 70,000 requests per minute. And maybe then the database has breathing room for us to diagnose whatever is going on and try some fixes. Yeah, interesting. To be clear, that's not something we use all the time. That's cool. Because like one of the things that I find like really nice with the CI/CD pipeline is how easy it is to debug performance issues. Because like there's often like kind of like a smoking red gun that we can revert. Or if I'm like testing out performance improvements, like that you can get those. You can test out twenty in a day if you want. That's really difficult for us when we try to do scalability work in the Ruby uh, in the Rails monolith. Many years ago, that was one of the difficulties we had because we had to wait for like, oh, I'm going to get a PR reviewed for this small change that I want to see if, if it's going to make a dent on performance. And then I'm going to have to wait for it to roll out. And I think at, at that time, we had staging on a day and deploys on the next day. So sometimes we had to wait like multiple days to have the ch just one small tweak to hit production. But that's not the same thing for like infrastructure changes. My team, all the infrastructure changes we do are, we just roll them out whenever we want and watch things change in, in Honeycomb or for specifically infrastructure stuff on Datadog. Another thing we also do is like recently we were tweaking the, the Haskell garbage collector. And one thing we did is like, since it's so easy with Kubernetes, we run a parallel deployment with one pod that, that is in the load balancer with everything else. And we run the, the Haskell profiler in that pod. And then we download the, the profiling output and we compare that to a regular pod and we see how things are looking. And in an afternoon, we can do a, a whole bunch of, of experiments as you were saying, like 20 experiments in a day. Oh, cool. Yeah. That... Is that an automate? 
Is that an automated comparison? No, not automated at all. Yeah. So like, I think that's just like one of the benefits of being able to like deploy real stuff to production and hit like the real databases is that like immediate feedback, like we're all of our stuff is on Datadog. We've got like pretty good instrumentation. So being able to say, deploy this to production and maybe like say this, you know, like this set of containers does this, hits this code path, this set of containers hits this other code path. And then like do a comparison on like, oh, that made things three milliseconds slower. That was a bad idea. You know, like revert that. And then like being able to like test the, that stuff out like pretty quickly, I think has like, like when COVID hit, we were at about like 8,000 requests per second, I'd say. And then like within a couple of days, we were at like 36,000 requests per second. So like, like that, that was like one of those times where we really had to like quickly test out a lot of like performance stuff and like make improvements, turn stuff off and like having that like ability to like quickly see like, oh, okay, so like we see that a lot of school student features are doing this, like, will this fix it? Can, and then can we turn it back on? Or do our attempts at helping like actually help? Like doing multiple of those in a day, you know, like doing 20 of those in a day is useful. That's really cool. That's really cool. 36,000 requests per second, that's a bunch. I think our, our highest traffic application runs 9,000 requests per second. Yeah, like we're way down from that because like part of it was just like bad client code. Like we just hadn't like bothered to like look at that was like doing too many requests for some pages. So like it, it was a little bit self-inflicted. We were doing some stuff that was like DDoSing ourselves and like we're much down from that. Like right now we're, looks like 13K. So for kind of like the RAPI. I did think it was interesting when we were preparing for this to see how we have some fairly similar numbers. I think we're 170,000 lines of source code. We both listed that for our main monolith. Well, just just for the Rails monolith, like overall, we have in our whole code base, it's like 1.2 million, like everything put together. Yeah, I, I have no idea what we've got over the whole code base. You have a lot more repos than we do, I think. Right? Yeah, but like, and like a lot of them are just old and not used. I've got no clue what like what stuff we put into our monoliths dependencies and like how big those things are. And I, I, I don't want to do the work to find out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dependencies we didn't count. <laughs> oh, no. But like, but like our, our own at Class Dojo repo code that we maintain that is a dependency of the stuff that we're running. Yeah. Like all of the internal libraries. Like I just have no idea what, where we're at there. Cool. This is a really nice discussion. Will, since you're our guest, would you like to kick off the picks? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I want to shout out is that Class Dojo is hiring and like we're trying to hire a lot of people. Backend engineers, full stack engineers. I think we're a great place to work. I've stuck around. So yeah, if you're interested, classdojo.com slash jobs has like a list of all of our roles and we'd love more good people. We're trying to really build out the teams over the next year. And the other stuff, I guess like Datadog, like has just been so huge for us. All of the stuff that they've got, like notebooks, their notebook feature is amazing. It's like amazing for runbooks. It's amazing for everything. I think I've got, I think I counted recently. I had like, I've got like, 500 personal notebooks or something like that, which is just stupid. Like, like nobody should have that many, but like, I love this feature and like, just like love Datadog in general. I really like notebooks too, but I, I think I have tops like 15 notebooks. That's probably more reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and then Apex Ping, like, like Datadog is amazing, but like a little expensive and Apex Ping, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like a service that just like hits your servers and measures kind of like user satisfaction by like how long it takes to get back to them with very simple requests. And it's a $10 a month or something like that service that is just, for $10 a month, they are so solid and good. And like often, like if there's like an infra problem, like they are very consistent at detecting it in a way that like, it's the whole like keep it simple, stupid thing, the KISS principle, like they're 
like they're nailing it and it's, I think they're amazing. Nice. I'll have to check that out. All right, I'll uh, I'll keep it moving. No ratings also hiring. <laughs> but hey, I mean, I, I appreciate your your coming on. And Class Dojo is also an ed tech company. I think we need more people in ed tech. So more power to you. I suspect like a lot of people listening to this episode would be like, man, sounds like Class Dojo has an awesome deploy system going on. But they might also be like, ooh, Elman Haskell, because we get a lot of people who apply because because uh, that part of our tech stack. So yeah, we're we're also trying to hire lots of people right now. <laughs> uh, okay, second pick. I'm going to go completely off the technology side of things and completely off topic for this episode and pick whetstones so i didn't know about whetstones aside from like i had heard of them as this like you know medieval big round thing that was used in the middle ages for something but then i learned that it's like modern whetstones they're kind of a felt like a small brick and they're for sharpening knives at home and since i've started using a whetstone it takes like i don't know 15 20 minutes to like sharpen up a knife but it just feels like you just bought a brand new knife all of a sudden. And it's like, oh, this cuts through all sorts of things instantly that used to just, I had like the saw at them and, you know, like a caveman. I had the same experience a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's it's really like, I, I just want to get the word out about whetstones. I'm not even going to recommend a particular brand. Just if you've never had the whetstone experience and you've got knives that where you're like, oh, this doesn't feel like a new knife anymore. Just try out a whetstone and like suddenly all of your knives can feel like brand new after you sharpen them up. So those will be my two picks. I was going to talk about whetstones, but I guess uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I do have I have one knife I sharpen regularly, one good knife. But I think on a similar vein, I'm going to recommend a a YouTuber, the lockpicking lawyer. He's quite popular, like millions and millions of views of him taking apart locks. And it's just super cool. He talks about the different security mechanisms and he shows you all like the little details. He has incredible physical dexterity, apparently, to be able to pick all these things so quickly. And there are like 1500 videos. So anything you want to know about how locks work, the lock picking lawyer is on YouTube. Okay, I think I have two picks. I didn't prep them. I'm going to have to improvise. So my first pick is Red Blossom Tea Store. It's in San Francisco. It's the best tea store I've ever been to in my life. And the reason I love them is because, like, it's a small tea shop. I've been to other tea shops where, like, people are kind of snobbish. They charge you to, to, to let you try tea. And at Red Blossom Tea Store, there's sort of, like, the simplicity expectation that you buy something, like, in every tea store, but they're happy to, like, show you stuff around. And everyone I've had give me tea to try was, like, just so curious and excited about tea. Even if they weren't super knowledgeable, like, that was really relatable. Never seen that in a place before, in a store for whatever kinds of products before. Solid place to buy Chinese, Taiwanese tea. And my second pick is a YouTube channel too. If you search for CCK philosophy, it's some, maybe he's a philosophy student or or teacher or something, but he does like pop culture philosophy analysis, like Shrek, a Marxist analysis, Glitter, a Marxist analysis, Sonic Adventure 2, a postmodern analysis, stuff like that the late capitalism of k-pop those are my picks sweet all right well let's let's uh wrap it up there will thanks so much for coming on this was a, a really interesting conversation yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed it it's fun like i i've had a lot of fun talking with like you all and with tessa about like all that you're doing at no red ink and like the differences it's it's super cool yeah we really appreciate it and, and feel free to let us know if you ever want to come on again and, you know, maybe maybe we'll be doing things differently in the future. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. <laughs>